you know, hopefully one of these days, these doors will bust open and we all be free. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. At the end of January, seven defendants faced trial in Paris, France for alleged acts of sabotage against Air France offices and other companies that collaborate in the imprisonment and deportation of refugees. These sabotage actions were made in solidarity with the revolt of prisoners inside the Vincennes Immigrant Detention Center in 2008, which burned that prison to the ground. The seven defendants won their motion, preventing the state from taking their DNA and delaying the trial till later this year. Their new trial date is, by chance, the 10-year anniversary of the Vincennes uprising. A new poll from the MacArthur Foundation found that at least 28% of Americans think their local justice systems are unfair. The poll surveyed a nationally representative sample of over 300 U.S. adults. Almost 75% of Americans support the use of pretrial services, which permit the court to release and monitor defendants before a trial. As for sentencing the convicted, 60% of Americans prefer rehabilitation or treatment for nonviolent offenders instead of punishing the people for committing the crime or keeping them off the street so they can't commit more crimes. For people with mental illnesses convicted of all but the most serious crimes, 75% of those polled preferred treatment to jail time. At least 75% of the people incarcerated in jails are there for nonviolent crimes, and at least 17% of those jailed have mental illnesses. On June 17, 2017, a coalition of queer and trans people of color made national news after four organizers were brutally arrested for peacefully disrupting the Pride Parade in Columbus, Ohio. Ripley, Kendall, Ashley, and DeAndre, now known as the Black Pride Four, attempted to hold a seven-minute moment of silence to bring attention to the acquittal of the police officer who murdered Philando Castile. One minute for every bullet put into his car. Not even one minute passed before police pepper sprayed and attacked them, cheered on by some white attendees. Eight months later, the Black Pride Four went to trial facing charges of resisting arrest, failure to comply with the police officer's order, disorderly conduct, and the most hyperbolic, alleged aggravated robbery of an officer's firearm. On February 12, 2018, three members of the Black Pride Four received a guilty verdict. The local LGBT center, Stonewall Columbus, ironically named in memory of the 1969 anti-police riots led by trans women of color, actively testified for the prosecution. This testimony helped secure convictions, meaning these three face exorbitant fines and jail time. The Black Pride Four will be sentenced in early March. Studies show that 47% of black trans women face jail time in their lives, and unfortunately for many, that means solitary confinement. Because jails and prisons are particularly dangerous for queer and trans people of color, organizers in Columbus have asked for help making sure these activists don't spend time behind bars. These organizers are calling for a National Day of Solidarity on February 28th, urging people across the country to plan solidarity actions and to bring awareness to the Black Pride Four in their communities. They say, quote, 
This is not an isolated struggle. The fight against repression extends from the Bay to D.C. to Standing Rock to Columbus to Charlottesville and beyond. We are asking that on March 5th, we stand in strong solidarity with the Black Pride 4. It is crucial in the coming weeks that we turn up the heat, unquote. We have just received the following request for solidarity. On January 22nd, 2018, Reverend Joy Powell did a TV interview exposing the brutality of Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, including the recent fentanyl overdose-related death of a prisoner there. Three days before the interview, she was harassed at the law library for having two book bags and a shoulder bag, which was too many bags, according to them, even though they were all filled with legal material. Said material was confiscated. Shortly after the interview itself, she was placed in shoe, solitary, as the same officers responsible for the above claimed that two bills fell out of her pocket as reason for placing her in shoe. DSS Michael Day and Lieutenant McBride are responsible, as they've been harassing her, and we ask you to call BHCF and demand hands-off Joy Powell. The New York State shoe exclusion law is meant to prohibit confining seniors with health issues in solitary. Joy is diabetic and has not been able to monitor her blood sugar because of this. A Sergeant McDaniels has not been allowing her to carry snacks at all times, a medical requirement due to her diabetes, out of malice and against medical advice. If you want to support Reverend Powell, you can call the superintendent of Bedford Hills Correctional Facility at 914-241-3100 and lodge your concerns. In this week's episode, we share a phone call and three short essays from Timothy Smith. Smith spoke to us from inside Cook County Jail, the most recent place he's been held in over 10 years in custody. Timothy has been at several institutions around Illinois and describes entering prison and specifically Menard Correctional Center. He describes solitary confinement and repercussions for acting out in prison, specifically in response to racist behavior from other inmates and guards. For instance, you'll hear him describe a moment where a correctional officer made monkey sounds over the intercom or a neighboring prisoner giving him a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf, both prompting a reaction from Smith. As we heard in the past two episodes, which covered the rise of the Nation of Islam in prisons during and after the Civil Rights Movement, prison is often a space for politicization. Smith describes his own political evolution, including telling us about the first time he came across a zine, which was written by a prisoner in a different facility, and how that affected him. We end with three short essays that Smith wrote and sent to us. As someone who is clearly affected by the power of others' words, it feels appropriate to close the episode with things Smith himself has written while on the inside. We'll hear more from Smith in future episodes, as he describes conditions in Cook County Jail and other issues he's faced during his time on the inside. For now, here's Timothy. The first time I was in Menard, I was in Menard when I had got found guilty for my case. I was sent down there, I think it was like the end of 2012. I was down there for like nine months, and now I was transferred. I wasn't supposed to go to Menard initially because I was under 20 years. They gave me 24 and I was going five years already. But they sent me down there, be, I guess, because of my, my aggressive level when I had established office in the county. They sent me to Mount Sterling, and from Mount Sterling, I called established office in Mount Sterling because it was a CO that was making uh, monkey sounds over the intercom in Mount Sterling. I went to Pontiac Sig, Pontiac. I went to Stateville. And I got kicked out of Stateville because it was my cellie was a racist. They kicked me out of Stateville. I went to Pontiac for another year, and then they sent me to uh, Menard. That's how I got back to Menard. 
my first time going down to Menard, I getting off the bus, you know what I'm saying? It's like a big show of force. Like the first thing they do, they yell at you, they Welcome to Menard, welcome to the pit. They try to see who's scared, who's shaking, who's nervous. They line you up, you know, they strip you completely naked. You know what I'm saying? They search all your, you know, search your clothes. They make you bend at your waist and spread your, your butt out, call squat. Like basically, it's, it feel like they like dehumanize you. They sent me down to the first place I went, I went to the West House, I was on one gallery. It was crazy, like I had frogs in my cell because it's a sewer. That it's a sewer that runs through the West House. From my cell, I can I can see the sewer, like the, the line. So I had frogs in my cell and it was, it was like during the summertime, it was hot as hell. And we were on lockdown because three organizations uh, beat up some white shirts on the yard and then some guys refused to come off the yard. So we was on lockdown for like six months, or I think there was nine months that I was down. And during the whole summer, I didn't have a fan. You know, they had bring ice like once a day. It, the conditions was terrible. It was filthy, nasty. But as far as like the prisoner solidarity was the strongest I ever seen anywhere since I've been in prison. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't a person that can come in and not have so no matter if you was a part of a street organization, no matter if you was white, if black, if you was Chicano, if no matter what you was, it was someone that a respite. When I first went down there, you know, it was it was like a lot of like Aryan brothers and a lot of uh like bikers and stuff, so and I had just came from the county and I was like a little hothead I, at the time. I think I was like 24. I, I'm not trying to sound like too bogus, but I was easy to whoop one day. So it was my neighbor, you know what I'm saying? I asked him for the, the book. He sent me mine come. And so I took it as disrespect. And so when I came out, I got into it with him. Physical altercation, they sent me the said was terrible. Like, said the sales was like, you can put your, wall, your hand on one wall and your hand on the other wall, that's how wide the cell is. You can like spread and do a push up and that's how long it is. The ceiling, you can touch the ceiling without standing on your tippy toes. If you like five by, you can touch the ceiling without standing on your tippy toes. There's no ventilation. So I went to cell for 30 days and from there, you know, they sent me to the East House and I'm there until they transferred. When I came back to Menard from Pontiac, when I got kicked out of Stateville, it was a lot of commotion going on about me from Stateville and Pontiac because during my first segregation, I had already started learning about anarchism and learned about resistance and solidarity and what we need to do and how to protect these people. So many roaches in Stateville, it's a trick that you can put a chip bag on the floor and you take a little hair grease and put it around the rim of the bag and put like a couple chips inside of it. And when you wake up in the morning, guaranteed to have like 30 or 40 roaches in the bag. So I filled up the bags with roaches and then I sent them to the warden. So the warden, gang and cell, they came to my cell, like came with a slip, like, oh, you want to need investigation? I'm like, what? He was like, you know what the f you did? I wrote my name and my ID number on the envelope. It was like, you know what you did? I was like, hey, where's shit? We gotta live with them, why y'all ain't gotta live with them? So that night they came and they shipped me out the joint. They took all my like, my study material, my organizing material, they took my essays, my books, everything. I went back to Pontiac, when I was in Pontiac, it was like a lot of resistance against the, against the pigs at that time. Like, 
a lot of the, the captain population was gassing them, fighting them, stabbing them. Either you was either the ones that was doing it, or you was the ones that was facilitating it. You know what I'm saying? It was like, I was on three galleries. Now, on one gallery, one gallery above three, I mean, below three galleries, you're behind a door, you know, there's no ventilation. So after you gas, the CO gases when you throw VCs or whatever on the CO, they leave you with nothing. They take all, all your material, everything you got, like your clothes, your, your soap and stuff. So us on three gallery, we had started like a little, we called it a war chest. We sent them like toothpaste, soap, boxes, socks, things that they need to get along, you know, writing paper stuff so they can be straight. Because every day, it was like, for like a month straight, it was at least 10 to 15 assaults on the on the dig a day in Pontiac said. The time I was writing Oak Group Press, so I was telling them about the situation. I'm wondering why Oak Group Press ain't right back. So when I get out of Fed, Gang and Trail, they call me. They like, man, so you used to facilitate all the guys that was assaulting the COs. And it was like, they was terrified. The COs was terrified. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what you mean facilitate? They was like, we read the letter that you wrote to Oak Group Press talking about you started a war chest to make sure they get everything that they had coming. I'm like, it ain't illegal for them to get what they got coming. Make sure they get soap and toothpaste. And he was like, yeah, but you know, he was basically rewarding them for assaulting us. I was like, you damn too. If they going to do it, you know what I'm saying? These guys got life in jail. If they feel like they want to assault them, then we going to make sure that they got soap, toothpaste, you know, write-outs and paper and, and clothes and socks and things that y'all take every time. They put me at Pontiac AD for like two weeks, and then they sent me to Menard. When I get down to Menard, it was like, soon I get down there, Gang and Phil come grab me, start harassing me. It was an incident happening on the yard where we refused to come off the yard. So they just, they threw me in on an investigation. They didn't know they didn't give me no sheets, no clothes, nothing. They just threw me up in the cell with nothing for like almost a month, 29 days. Mm -hmm. And then from yeah, they let me out. First time I came up on the upon the scene, uh, yeah, I was in the cell. You know, I was naked. I, you know, I felt like I was going crazy. And my neighbor, he sent me one. You know what I'm saying? I, I think it was a scene about uh, it's called "Kill Yourself Versus Liberate Yourself" by Kevin Rossi Johnson, and it was uh, distributed by the South Chicago ABC Zine Distro. So you know, I read it and I'm like, this is powerful. So he started sending me more and more and more. Before I really got in tune with anarchism, I had gotten in tune with like communism, Maoism, learning basically the study of, of socialism. It didn't feel like there was any love in it. And from there, you know, I just started reading more and more. And I wrote my father, I'm like, there, I'm an anarchist. My pops wrote me back and he's like, well, well, as long as you're alive, you can be in there, you wanna be. Majority of the, the guys that I come across are anarchists. They just don't know it yet. Like, they hate the police. They just want to be free. It's just the, the philosophy isn't conceptualized as, as anarchism. They just think it's like just, man, I'm just ready to get it on with these people. So I just basically, you know, I try to get study groups. I pass out material. You know, if I do something, I'll let people know why I did it. You know what I'm saying? Because some people just think I'm crazy. Like, man, you trying to fight with these people, man. You about to go home. 
we've been gone 10 years, you trying to catch a case. I'm like, no, it ain't about catching the case. It's about resistance, bro. It's about letting these people know that at every point that they're going to be challenged. Like, they're not going to get off on anything. They give us what we got coming and leave us the f alone. If they ain't trying to free us, I'm not trying to talk. You know, hopefully one of these days, these doors will bust open and we all be free. Up next, we have three essays written by Timothy. Here's Classification Creates Discontent. From birth, we are taught that a certain way of thinking is normal. Sexualization of women is bombasted into our minds, while women's sexuality is shunned religiously. Slavery was the social norm of the time. A slave born a slave most of the time only thought as a slave, and only reached within the limitations of slavery. Freedom was inconceivable. How can you conceive the taste of a foreign fruit you haven't ever tasted it? Thus what's normal to us is law to the mass, no matter how wrong it may be. But the moment a slave tastes freedom, they could never be a slave again. They are now a captive, a prisoner because their minds are unlocked to a new way of thinking. Their spirit's a new way of existing. While the captive may be physically subjected, their minds are in revolt. Their spirits live in between defiance and survival. Emotions such as love, lust, greed, and jealousy is lumped in with broad classifications such as human nature, when only it is human nature to thrive for survival. We are taught that assimilation is the key to survival, the blending of our habits, traits, and ideas until we become one mass suit personality. This is not fluidity, this is death. A mother's love defeats the argument of human nature. A mother will sacrifice herself for the young's survival, even though she knows that her young will not survive without her. She dies for their existence, if only for moments more. Women will not submit because this is not her nature. For if it was, it would not be drilled in every religious, social, or legal dictum laid by man. It is not natural to be a slave, whether to man, of social norms, or religion. Though we are taught this by the same teachers that taught us blacks were property, the First Nations were savages, and that Browns were rapists, drunks, drug dealers. By the same people that calls one group criminals while they create the atrocities on a larger scale. Fluidity is like a river beating against a boulder. Eventually that boulder will disappear and the river will continue to run. Only thing human nature speaks of is where there is repression, there will be resistance. Bleeding through whether it be text, shackles, or actual skin and bones, there will be resistance, whether through the tiniest of acts such as a middle finger to an all-seeing eye, or learning how to read by candlelight, there will be resistance. By song or by bullet, by chant or by knife, resistance is and always will be human nature. Resistance is fluidity. Fluidity and Resistance My name, our names, are but the mind's feeble attempt to grasp and categorize in order to remember. A name is non-existent. It is but a persona, a figment of our imagination. If anything, we are named after the actions we commit, though the actions only define us at that point in time. So to say I am Red Wolf is to say that whoever I defined or others defined Red Wolf is that persona. If I was to leave that group and go to another group and say my name is Fox, they will accept me as such, not because of who I was, but because of who I am perceived to be at that moment in time. 
Today I am Red Wolf. Tomorrow I may be someone else, and yesterday I was Shirley who made me who I am or am not today. Freedom begins with the abolishment of titles. Autonomy begins with the understanding that your name or title only serves towards classification, which restricts your ability to transcend. To put a name to us is certainly to hand over the keys to our freedom. To box us into a group, that which can be isolated, killed, and destroyed. Even social categorization is meant to limit through social normalcy. To say that she is my wife or that he is my husband is to limit the potential of the relationship. Because both have already been defined in its absoluteness and thus constricts our perception to only what we've been taught by the social norms to exist in which in itself limits what the mind sees as right and wrong, therefore limiting the possibility of a more organic relationship. Fluidity gives us the ability to not state titles but intentions, such as we are lovers, which constricts the mind to what comes with the context of what lovers are. Rather, our intentions are to love each other, giving us space to grow in our own high state of what loving another might be. This, therefore, frees us from the construct of gender roles, machismo, or overt sexualization. Who's to say that either wants or needs to be the dominant or submissive, or what we in fact need to be in a solely monogamous relationship? Isn't love enough? In this society, it isn't that one must be the wife or must be the husband, one must be the dominant while the other submissive, one must be the strong while the other... Well, you get my point. Fluidity teaches that neither is expected, only that we be who we are at our highest ability, without the expectation of what anyone else wants us to become. Fluidity gives us the ability to experiment without recourse, challenge our way of thinking or social norms without being shunned due to committing to one ideology or another, schools of thought and or principles. This is not to say that anarchy isn't fluidity, only that the moment it isn't, is when we begin to categorize and subcategorize it beyond what anarchy is. Freedom. Social Economic Domestication If an animal is fed every day by a certain person, at a certain time and place, that animal will begin to associate that person, place, and time with nourishment. Despite whatever the feeder's intentions, whether trapper or tourist, it understands that food will be readily available without effort. Though hunting may still become an urge, the animal becomes subdued by the contentment of dependency. No longer would this animal have to use its natural instincts and capabilities to survive only learn to be submissive and dependent on the feeder. State dependency ensures that revolutionary culture will stay in remission. Instinctively, one may yearn for freedom, but it is subdued by pacification. In the way of reform and social policies, which is meant to further stiffen the growth of a culture of resistance. Though colonization is accurately used to describe the overall domination of a people by an outside force, Domestication entails a more personal analysis of our community. Not to say domestication ensures that we are, or once were, savages, but that due to so many generations of colonization, we lost the instinct to fight. We've become domesticated to all what the state wants us to be. 
Our dependency of the state's resources and powers hinder our willingness to fight for freedom. We've become slaves to contentment. For we are not equal in this house of colonization. We are slaves to the will of the state. Dependency is functional addiction, not just because you can afford the drug or that you won't sell your ass for it, doesn't mean you're not addicted. Addiction is when you can't function properly without the drug, and in our community, dependency on the state is the norm. Medicare, public aid, social security, and public housing are but social cracks, political meth, and economic heroin. This dependency in our community has become the noose that is choking the life out of autonomy. We must not fight for further domestication, but utter and complete freedom. The ability to live free is centered around our ability to become self-sufficient. Therefore, dependency not just on the government, but institutions which benefit the government are a threat to autonomy and an enemy of the people. Understanding this enables us to evaluate who are the friends and foes of our resistance. The first step to severing the community ties of dependency to the state is to create a culture of self-sufficiency and the creation of alternative institutions that promote solidarity and not subjugation. The whole community should participate and learn the ins and outs of these institutions, therefore making it impossible for a hierarchical structure to develop. In these programs, schools, gardens, clinics, and housing will be all conscious acts of rebellion against dependency. Social economic domestication is systematic, economic, and social repression of a community by the state in order to make that community dependent on the state, which therefore denies the community the ability to become autonomous, gain any political or economic power, and thereby breeding future generations of submissive minds who are content with their situation. A dog will never bite the hand that feeds it. So f*** dependency and eat the rich. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812 269 2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening. This is a collect call from an inmate at the Cook County Department of Corrections in Chicago, Illinois. Be aware of unlawful solicitation and deceptive practices, such as the inmate requesting you to hang up and dial star 72 or 1172. This call is subject to recording and monitoring.